How many people do you need to have a church? You'll hear the answer in episode 73 of En Route. Welcome to Enroute, the podcast where we talk about the journey of faith and how it intersects with religion, politics, and culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Tell me if you are involved, especially in a congregation, uh, especially a mainline Protestant congregation, that you have heard this phrase probably at some point in your life, whether it's your laity or clergy, your congregation isn't viable. I'm the pastor of a small congregation um, just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and I've heard that phrase, and you probably have too. Maybe you'll have heard it from a member that's leaving the congregation or from a denominational official. What it says basically is that your congregation doesn't have enough people or enough energy or what have you to survive, and so it's best that you end the visible ministry of the congregation. But is that the really the whole story? Is viability based on how many butts are in the pews? And how many people do you need to have a church anyway? Tracy Barno says the answer is two. Two people. She gets that from Matthew 18, um, the phrase where two or three are gathered. Now, That phrase doesn't exactly talk about how many people you need in a church, but the spirit behind it, that it doesn't matter how many people you have, it's it's God's spirit that is what drives and, and helps the community, is what matters. Tracy is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and she has made it her mission to help congregations grow. She doesn't do this by using some secretive patented process, but by age-old ideas of welcoming people when they visit and inviting family and friends to worship with you. So if you're the minister of a declining mainline Protestant congregation, heck, if you're even the minister of an evangelical uh, congregation, this episode's for you. Tracy will, all, will, will tell you why you just need two people to be church, two people and the Spirit. So, let's give a listen to Reverend Tracy Barno. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me this afternoon. Sorry for the kind of the craziness and log and trying to get online. All right. Well, um, I think the first thing I would like to know a little bit more about you is the um, kind of your background as a minister. 
um, and your experience and um, kind of dealing with congregations as they're dealing with change and decline. Okay, well, um, I was, for people who know me, I've kind of always been a minister. Um, I was <laughs> raised in the Episcopal Church, and I've always been that person that's, you know, worried about other people and gathering people together to try and solve a social ill and um, listening for God, you know, in the mix to figure out, you know, discernment, practicing discernment. I was raised in the Episcopal Church, but I was officially ordained um, and, you know, finished seminary and went through that whole process by the United Church of Christ in 2012. And I've been okay. serving um, as a full-time minister pretty much ever since in some capacity or another, though I did work for churches in other capacities before that point, um, you know, as youth director and family and spiritual life minister and and that sort of thing. Um, so, so yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I got my start, I really kind of, I don't know, really kind of got going as a growth specialist um, when I was attending a church in Portland, Oregon, where I started, um, um, I started really getting my groove um, back in, gosh, it would have been 1990, probably around two, 1998, 1999, um, when I started uh, attending a church in Portland, Oregon, and I had a moment where I was, I love this church. Um, they were very, very old. Um, I think I was the only person in the congregation under the age of 70. Um, and I was in my 20s. I was going to college. And um, I, I met a neighbor who was in her 90s and who who took me through a long series of uh, crazy events that you can read about in more detail and Grow Your Church. That was my first book. But I noticed something when I was there and, and that we had people coming, you know, people coming in and people would go again, you know, if a newcomer would come and visit for a week and then disappear and never see them again. And, and it didn't make any sense to me because we were a warm, welcoming, loving congregation. You know, we were small, we were older, you know, but we had good music and everybody was really nice and we had good snacks afterwards and, you know, all that. And so one day I was just happened to be in the happened to be in the in the narthex just a little before or a little after service and nobody else was there and I saw the old lectern um and they were using it to hold the guest book and I was like oh I remember signing the guest book some years ago and I'm gonna go check it out you know I wonder if my name's still in there and I went to look and I and I noticed something really interesting my name was still in there from several years back and the guest book was one of those old things it looks like things you have at a wedding you know this huge open thing and um, the guest book, amazingly enough, went back almost 20 years. You could see names going all the way back to like, um, you know, the early 70s. And, uh, and yet only the first three pages of it had been filled out, which was odd because we were getting people every week, which means that people were coming, but they weren't signing the guest book. Mm. And if they don't sign the guest book, the minister can't follow up with them. And so I, I kind of watched to see what was happening, you know, on Sunday mornings. And sure enough, people would come in every every Sunday. We'd get new people and the ushers would say, oh, if you have a minute, would you please sign our guest book? And they would point all the way to the other side of the room. And people never made it that far. They'd hear the music going and they go, OK, I'll, I'll take care of that after worship. And they would go into the sanctuary and they would never sign it. And so people were coming and going and we were never following up with them. And so 
I decided to take up upon myself to walk around with that guest book and get those newcomers every single Sunday to sign the guest book. And it started filling up really fast. And then the minister started following up with them and the congregation started growing like gangbusters. And that's when I really got my start as a growth specialist and a church, you know, revitalizer. But I also started to realize it doesn't take, you know, some major profit at the level of Moses to do this. Mm-hmm. It's simple skills. It's simple steps. Um, anybody can do it. You don't need permission. You don't need a budget line item. You don't need a vote from the council. You don't need permission from a bishop. You can just do it. And, and small things make an enormous difference. And ever since then, I've been trying uh, different things. You know, people say, oh, this is really works. This is really successful. And I always say, well, let's try it and let's see how successful it is before we start recommending it. And I think that's what makes me a little odd is that I really do test things out in multiple churches and track the numbers before Mm -hmm. I make a pronouncement of what will work, what's successful, what's helpful, what's vital, what's not vital. Um, You know, what, what makes a church viable or not viable because that church by all accounts would have been considered not viable. They would have probably, anybody would have probably given it 10 more years before everybody in it died. And then that would be the end of it. Um, But that wasn't the end of it. It was a very simple fix and um, I ended up being ordained in that church some about a decade later. And by the time I got to seminary, I was getting letters from them talking about how they needed to recruit more Sunday school teachers because they had so many kids, they had to split it into three different classes by age, you know. Uh, and, and so it, it really was, um, you know, you asked me to come on this podcast to talk about viability and viability by all standards um, generally it's not measurable by the way we like to measure things in American capitalistic society. Um, so, so that's how I got my start. And that's, I, I think I'm still starting because there's, there's always something new to learn. There's always something new to try. There's always somebody who's claiming they've got this number one, 100% guaranteed method. And I say, well, let's try it out and see before we are sure. And so, yeah. Well, why is viability such a, a big thing? Um, it's just, it's fascinating being um, kind of in a small church, but also around a, a lot of other small churches, you see a small congregation and people are immediately determining what makes it viable. And some people will say, well, it has to be a full-time pastor or that it has to have so many people. And um, you have a very different standard of viability. Well, the, the, I think the thing is, viability is a really loaded term right now. And the yeah, reason why it's loaded it is. is because as churches started struggling, um, and this started, you know, churches had their big boom when the baby boomers all started having kids and they started filling up Sunday schools um, back in the 60s. Well, all those folks aged out by the 80s, early 90s. And at that point, those Sunday schools started petering out and um, people started leaving for college and they didn't come back to those youth groups, you know, and all of a sudden, um, then we had a whole bunch of crazy scandals in the churches. Um, I would like to say it was just the Catholic Church, but it wasn't just the Catholic Church. And we saw a lot of really bad behavior from politicians and celebrities and public figures who simultaneously claimed to be Christian or said that they were doing it because they were Christian, whatever they were doing that was so horrible or off-putting. And so people started leaving churches. Um, and churches started, some denominations started really getting into politics. Um and, and so 
So all of a sudden, churches experienced, because of a whole bunch of different reasons, a sudden and rapid decline, and they suddenly were missing multiple generations. Um, you know, the 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 40-somethings were gone, the 20-somethings were gone, and now they're trying to figure out how to get in families that have, you know, the babies and the small children, and they don't know what to do anymore because they're terrified. And amidst all of this, churches, of course, they did what they always do, right? They go to their denomination for support. They, they In the United Church of Christ, they'll call their associate conference minister or their conference minister in the Episcopal Church. They'll call their, their bishop or their the head of their diocese. You know, the Presbyterians call the presbytery. And they say, you know, I think we're really struggling here. We're about to call a new pastor. We've got to go through this process, and we don't know if we have enough money for it. Or our roof is falling in, and we don't know if we have enough money for it. Um, we'd like to start a new ministry. We think that could really help, but we don't have enough money for it. We need resources. And I think what happened was all of these dioceses and presbyteries and conferences and what have you suddenly got slammed with requests for help and they didn't have enough resources to help everybody. So they started saying, well, we don't want to waste our time and money on churches that are just going to die anyway. So let's start assessing viability before we dole out help and resources. And it became a math game. Right. And and I've seen this because I used to help churches. This is another thing that I got my start on. And I got to be really careful because I don't want to mention denominations, but I helped churches. A lot of churches and, and um, denominations at that point came out with some version of a vitality grant. Right. If you can put together a plan and show how you're going to grow and you just need a little cash to get you started, you can apply for a grant. And then the denomination will give you some money to help you do this. Right. Well, I helped a church do that. I helped them develop a, a, a three-year plan um, using all these methods that I was sure would work because they had so many times in the past. And they put this together, um, and I wrote a grant for them, and they got the money. They got like 20000 bucks. They couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Well, word got out because everybody said, well, how did you get this grant? And they said, well, you need to call Tracy. So I started um, helping these churches apply for grants. And what I noticed was um, the 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 vitality granting process was assessing churches for vitality and whether or not the money would be well spent um, in very strange ways that made it almost impossible for any church to actually qualify. Um, and then they were getting such an overwhelming request that they were they started making the grants self-sustaining by charging the churches back to get all that money back so they could then find the next one, which made it impossible. Um, and two things came out of that. Um, one was I realized that the assessments were very strange, you know, like they wanted to know the size of the signage and they wanted to know if the building looked like it was falling down and they wanted to know how many discipleship programs the church had or were planning to have, but they couldn't define what discipleship was. And a lot of their things were based on statistics that they had heard somewhere. You know, 57% of churches that are growing have this color of flowers in their front yard. So then on the viability test, they'd ask, what color flowers do you have in your front yard? And these were the kinds of things that would make or break whether or not they would grant the money to the church because they didn't want to just throw money down into a sinking ship. And the other thing, so that's one thing that I realized was the viability counter was off. And the other thing I realized was at one point I was helping a church apply for a grant. I've been working with them for some months, holding meetings, putting things together, writing it, testing things. 
And at one point, um, I found out that the viability granting process or a vitality granting process had changed significantly. They were going from two years, twice a year to once a year, but they were also um, adding even more expensive um, hoops that churches had to jump through. And when you did the math, if you got $20,000 in the vitality grant, you would have spent all of that $20,000 back to the denomination within the first year anyway. So there was no net gain. And so I called this church to say, hey, I just found this out. Um, I'm so sorry. At this point, I'm, I would still love to help you, but I cannot recommend that you go forward with this granting process anymore. It's going to cost you money to do it. You're not going to get any net gain. And the minister said something to me that just blew my mind. To this day, I still remember, I'm, I remember exactly where I was standing, and it, it blew my mind. He said, there's this long pause, and I expected, I don't know, tears, upset, anger, something. And what he said was, well, actually, I think that's okay, because honestly, all the things that you are writing down for our strategic plan, we've already been using them. And they're working like, you know, gangbusters. And none of them cost any money. He said, we just got like a, a spontaneous $3,000 pledge um, out of the blue last week because we used one technique. We've got new members coming in because of another technique. We just launched a new ministry because of another um, technique. I don't think we even need this grant money anymore because everything you're telling us not only works, it doesn't cost anything to implement. And that's when I realized that the concept of viability, in my opinion, is very different from what a lot of denominations are using to assess the viability of their churches. What is your um, concept of viability? My concept of viability um, is very biblical um, in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. I truly believe that, you know, wherever two or more are gathered in God's name, God is there with them, and that's a church. Now, um, I also um, look for things like, is the church discerning? The, the spirit is the church um, paying attention to all of the gifts that God is sending them is the church discipling people. And that means to me that that means are they actively welcoming in new people to join them on a path and teaching them everything they need to know to be able to do it as well as they can so that they can teach the next person. Right. Um, in modern like capitalistic society, we'd call that mentoring or something like that. But it's true. If you if you stick kids into dis, into Sunday school and expect them to sit there till they're 18 and then suddenly transition smoothly to the pews, you're not discipling them. You are shunting them off to another location and keeping them separate. Actively discipling means you're always thinking about how's that next person going to take that next step and how are they going to be able to invite someone else to do it too. Um so that's viability or vitality to me. When I go into talk to a church, they'll often give me these, like to consult, they'll give me these assessment reports that are unbelievable. They're like 50 pages long and they've got all of these checklists and numbers and they they went through the process of having all of these steps where they asked all the people in the church all these questions about what the church means to them and they paid a lot of money for them. Um, I tend to ask something different. I tend to check to see what kind of skills they have and what skills they're using and what skills they may need to learn. And so usually I start very simply, you know, what do you do when a newcomer comes in for the first time? And I listen to them. And if they, they say something like, well, the usher always says, hello, would you be willing to please sign that guest book that's like 50 feet away on the other side of the room? 
and the person never signs it, I say, well, let's see if we can change that one thing and see what kind of a difference it makes. And they say, well, we don't ever see any newcomers. Last time we saw one was two Christmas Eves ago. Well, that's a different skill set. That means we need to work on inviting. And welcoming the stranger and inviting people is very biblical. That is what Jesus did. Jesus did not put together really great flyers and paper everybody in the Walmart parking lot with them. Jesus did not develop websites. Jesus did not um, figure out how to put in a really amazing ad in the yellow pages or in the local newspaper. Jesus didn't work on signage. Jesus, in, he, he, he discipled people and he encouraged them to invite people. Um, and he showed them how to do it, and they, he made sure they had a buddy so they weren't going alone, and he blessed them and commissioned them and sent them off with all the authority they needed to be able to do that. He didn't micromanage them. He didn't tell them they were doing it wrong. He didn't say, this is the way we've always done it. He just blessed people, and he focused on those things. And so, and those are skills. Those aren't something you have to be, you know, Elijah-level prophet, Moses-level prophet to be able to do. Anybody can do them. Anybody can learn. Anybody can fall flat on their face and fail 10 times and still figure it out and be able to be successful. And so that's how I usually assess viability. And I go to, to five basic skills. Um, do you know how to invite people to church and encourage your congregation to do the same, make it easy for them. Do you know how to welcome a stranger when they come in so that they feel cared for enough that they want to return and get engaged in the things that you're doing? Um, do you know how to, hold on just a second. Do you know how to disciple your youth so that they can learn to be um, leaders so that they can make the church their own when their generation comes of age. That's really important. I think that's something that they did not do over the past 20, 30, 40 years. Um, do you know how to ask for money in such a way that you can sustain your ministries and your church? Um, and do you know how to get out of the way and let God do what God needs to do and just let the church become what it needs to become rather than trying to make the church become what you want it to become? Those I mean, it, it sounds oversimplified, and I try to actually oversimplify it because that makes it easier for people to remember, and it seems a little more digestible. But those are the basic five skills that I I look at, and that is um, th those are all biblical skills, right? They're all mm -hmm. biblical skills, and uh, and we've lost them as a progressive church, especially. We've lost those skills. Um, and people are afraid to learn them again. They're afraid to use them again because they've only seen really awful examples of but, them. And that's what I was going to get at is that it seems like we have either forgotten those skills or just don't even really know about them. I mean, the where two or three are gathered is a pretty common verse, but mm -hmm. we ignore it. And so why is that? Well, I think... I think there's a lot going on. I don't think there's just one reason why. Um, I talk about this a lot in my book, Grow Your Church. When it, uh, it, The tagline is overcome the biggest obstacle to church growth and get 85% of your first-time visitors to return. And that biggest obstacle, okay, spoiler, spoiler chapter two, okay, it's fear. Um, progressives are afraid of offending people, of stepping on their toes, of being perceived as a Bible beater, as, be, as being perceived as, or, or um, being perceived as as pushy or aggressive or alienating someone or making them feel uncomfortable, and, and that 
generally falls into two reasons why. The one is that they've seen it done very poorly. They think telling people about Jesus, the only thing, only time they've seen someone do that is like the angry individual with the sandwich board that says God hates and there's all these lists of people and a megaphone saying, come to Jesus, repent, you all sinners, you're horrible people, you know, and, and yelling epithets of people as they go by. When someone says evangelism, that's often what we think of. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to be that. But they don't know what else to be because they've never seen anything else. And the other reason is um, projection. This is just very simple. They say, well, I don't want the other person to feel uncomfortable. Well, it's because they feel uncomfortable. So they assume the other person will feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and Or they say, you know, I think that they'll feel um as though they're being coerced. Well, it's because that's what they feel. In reality, people like being welcomed. They like being, um, you know, embraced. They like being care feeling cared for when they come to a church. And all of these, all of these fears that progressives have, uh, they they happen with the newcomer when they come in, but they also happen when it comes to evangelism or outreach or spreading the word. They 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 really enjoy putting together a great website with a fabulous logo that then translates into a newspaper ad that translates into an amazing flyer. But to go up and say, hey, I've got this thing going on, and I think you have some really amazing gifts, and you might really enjoy with enjoy participating would you like to come with me you know on saturday we're having a tree planting at my church that's where they they, they just shut down and they they're afraid to do it um and so that's i think a lot of the problem is because they're afraid to do it and they also they don't know how to do it they don't know that there are easy fun respectful thoughtful honest ways positive ways to invite people to church, to invite people to be a disciple, to invite people to, to check these things out um, because they don't know how. And they don't, if they don't know how, and ministers, I hate to say it, but ministers don't know how, then it's almost impossible for them to, to do it with their congregation and to teach their congregation and to encourage their congregation. And that's why um, I talk a lot about church vitality and saying it's don't assess your church for vitality. If you have people that are excited about your church, it's vital, it's viable, but maybe you need to learn some new skills. And so that's where I've worked really hard to try and break down these skills and teach people how to do them and teach people how to teach them. Um, Otherwise, it just seems impossible, um, and, and people just get afraid, and then they shut down, and then there's no chance. And, and if everybody in your congregation is terrified and shut down and thinks they're already going to die, then it's really hard to convince them that they're viable, um, and, and it can be self-defeating. So. Do you think that church denominational bodies have, in some ways, adapted or, or adopted kind of cultural understandings of what viability is all about instead of biblical understandings yeah because when churches ask them for um resources it always boils down to money even if it's just staff time um you know there's there's conversations going on in one denomination right now about if if churches are no longer contributing to their um larger body to the associations of churches or to the diocese, um, do we still help them like when they need to have hire a new pastor? Or do we assume that they have not put in enough resources to warrant resources going back? And the reason for that is because churches are absolutely strapped, right? They're absolutely 
strapped and they need help. And the conferences and the diocese and the presbyteries are absolutely strapped, right? They're, they're down 15 staff people from what they used to be back in the 60s. They don't have an unlimited budget. You know, what used to be like for the entire state of California, you might have had 30 people that covered all that territory. Now you have two, you know, so they have to pick and choose. And if they have to choose, they're going to pick the squeaky wheel that gets the grease and the ones that are um, actively contributing to the money that supports their salaries, they're going to choose those churches as well. And the thing is, if they don't have the skills to help the churches grow, um, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be called to a losing proposition. No one wants, wants to say, you know, would you come, would you come help if they don't have the skills? And so they're going to gravitate to where they can, to the ones that are going to be most likely to be able to get that grant, to the ones that are going to be, um, that maybe aren't in as, as much trouble as they, as they, as they really think that they are, because they're still able to contribute. So how much trouble can they be in? Um, and 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 then you end up with churches that just close. And then the denomination will step in and say, okay, okay, well, um, before you sell that building, though, let's talk. We'd like to be part of that decision, who you sell it to or whether or not you sell it. Maybe you could consider donating it to the presbytery or letting us put in a new minister to try a new church start. But by that point, you know, the relationship has so broken down that anything they would teach them won't be heard anyway. Um, and so you see that a lot. You see that a lot, unfortunately. But yeah, I don't think, especially in the progressive church, you know, the, the ministers that become associate ministers, that become diocesan ministers, that become bishops, that become, and so on, if they never learned how to invite people, and they never learned how to teach people to invite people, simply going up the chain and being, you know, overseeing more and more doesn't suddenly give them skills that they never had in the first place. And they lose their ability to, um, their, their opportunities to practice those skills because they're not in parish ministry anymore doing it every single day. In this, That's kind of a um, long answer to a <laughs> question, but is that what you wanted to, is that, did that yes, answer your question? that's exactly what I was trying to get at. And I, I think it, it, there is something interesting to see pastors and um, officials in um, middle judicatories who in some ways it's, it feels at times that there's a lack of, of ideas of mm -hmm. how to renew a church or, um, even if it has to close, how does it close in a way that is um, unique or, or creative that can help um, maybe foster another congregation or something? It's just very much, here's his church. Well, it was nice to, it had a nice ministry. Um, make sure maybe some of the money goes to, you know, the presbytery or region or, or whatever, and that's it. And it just seems like there should just be more. Like there's a there, there's a sense of mission that's missing. Right. Well, see, and that that's something that is really interesting to me because just like we we wonder, what does the word vital and viable mean to you? Well, it, it's a very loaded term. Well, the church closing is also a very loaded term, though I don't think people realize it is. They just assume, well, the church closed, right? It ran out of money. The people got too old. Everybody died. It closed. Okay. They, could, they just couldn't make it work. So it closed. The church didn't close. What they did was they moved out of their building and they did something else with their building. They sold it or they rented it out or they donated or something. Um, but that group of people went somewhere. Okay. Um, the church did not die. The church cannot close. Okay. They can simply 
no longer be worshiping in a gigantic building that's falling apart with gorgeous stained glass and an organ and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the church can't close. And actually, I've seen multiple times now where everybody goes, oh, it's so sad. That church closed. They sold their building. And now it's just like 10 older retirees sitting on like a $5 million endowment from the sale of their building. And they've just gone 100% mission at this point. Isn't that sad? No, it's not sad. That's actually amazing because what they have, what they're focusing on is listening to God and trying to figure out how best to use the resources that have been given to them to make the world a better place. And that is exactly what stewardship is in its, in its essence. That's exactly what uh, gratitude is in its essence. That's exactly what giving and mission is in its essence. And I'm not surprised at all that they're um, finding it joyful because they get to think about what's really important to them. What's really important to all the people that stick by stick built that church with every bake sale, with every uh, a rummage sale, with, with every car wash, money was put into that building. And now they suddenly have it. And instead of spending it on a roof and um, protecting the stained glass or repairing the organ, they're spending it on things like food pantries, homeless shelter, uh, rescuing pregnant homeless women, right? Um, getting teens out of gangs, uh, Habitat for Humanity. And they're spending the money on the basics, right? The, when you were a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? That's where they're putting the money. And it's 100% mission. And they're not burdened by this gigantic building that they simply can't afford anymore. Um, in, in my opinion, that's an incredibly vital church. If they get together once a week and they pray and then they figure out how to gratefully redistribute these resources, that's an incredible church. Mm -hmm. It just, people think, oh, it closed. No, wherever two or more are gathered, Jesus is with them. Um, and so that's, you know, the church can't die. It can just move out of buildings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Going back to the article that I read um, where you were hired on, I believe, for Sunday school. Um, yes. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I used to be in Sunday school. I, okay, go ahead. Finish your question. Then we'll, well talk about it. It was school. just funny because it's kind of like one person said kind of like, whoo, I'm not in your position anymore. And they were all kind of throwing their stuff at, at you. They were. But there was in this one woman that, really came and I think changed, it seems like it changed everything. And yeah. would you mind sharing that story? Yeah. Well, okay. So yeah, I, I was in some, I was in seminary and I had two small children. My, my little girls were, were very young at that point. I think they were like three and six. They were, you know, at that age where everybody just is so excited to have them at any church, you know? And so we stopped by one Sunday and they saw me and asked me about myself. I said, oh, I'm in seminary. I'm planning on being a minister, you know, and they were like, oh, our new Sunday school teacher has arrived. How can we, how can we, we've been looking for someone. And, and they were just convinced that I should be, you know, like, cause I was the, the perfect caricature of what everybody thinks the Sunday school teacher should be. Right. And so I said, no, I, I, I'm not good at Sunday school. I'm good at playing with a group of kids. I'm not good at keeping them seated and organized and raising their hands and, you know, getting through some sort of a lesson. So I declined that. But 
I said, you know, what, why are you so eager to hire a Sunday school teacher? And they talked about how they're trying to get more. It is all, all about growth and vitality, right? They're trying to get more people in and trying to get more kids in. And they had these sort of youth programs that were sort of languishing. And, and so I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll talk to you, you know? And so I, I was going to go talk to, I think the minister or something. And so I walked in the door and there's like six people around the table, four people around the table, all the heads were there because they had he had shared with them what I had said about some growth and vitality stuff. And so we talked for like two, two hours. And um, I don't think I put this in the article, but at the end of the two hours, because they kept saying, well, we want to do this. Could you help us with this? And I said, well, probably not, because a lot of churches try that and that doesn't work. You know, what, what are you trying to get to? What, what you know, I would do it this way. And, and everything that they were trying to do, which wasn't working, I was trying to very politely negate and say, no, I would do it differently. That's why I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and at the end of the conversation, we've been there for two hours. One of the people said, well, okay, great. So you'll be here Monday at nine and um, we're going to need a job description. So if you could just write down everything you just said, because I wasn't able to take notes that fast, just write down everything you just said and, 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 and bring that with you. That'll be your job description. And I was like, I'm sorry, did you think you just offered me a position and I just accepted because I missed that part? <laughs> but but I did, I started. And um, and yeah, that first day, I showed up Monday morning, 9 a.m. It was only for 10 hours a week. Okay, 10, 10 hours a week. And, and like five of those were on Sunday. So, you know, I'm there on Monday and somebody comes in the door and she's got all these bags full of like papers and crafting supplies and she just dumps them on my desk and she goes, here, I was volunteer Sunday school teacher for like six years. Now that you're here, I don't have to do that anymore. These are for you. And she dumps them all on my desk and walks out. And then, you know, half an hour later, someone else walked in with all these bags and bundles and boxes with full of, you know, youth supplies and, and papers and documents and old files and, and lists and things. And she goes, oh, okay, I heard they hired you. So here, you're going to need all of these because I don't need them anymore. And they're just cluttering up space in my garage. And she like dumps all this stuff on my on my desk. And this happened like 10 times over the course of a couple of hours, all of these people who had been volunteering and helping and working with the youth and, you know, in various capacities over the years, all came in and quit and they were all volunteers, but in their mind, you know, there, there's a couple of problems there. It, it, first of all, they assumed that a 10 hour a week employee was going to be able to replace you know, all of these people. 10 employees that had been doing this for there were 10 volunteers that had been doing this for years. That wasn't true. And the other thing it told me was that these people were fried. They were burnt out. They were tired. They were frustrated. For whatever reason, this was no longer fun for them. If it had ever been, it felt like a chore and they didn't want to do it anymore. And they were relieved and grateful to be able to get rid of it. And that let me know something about the state of the church. And, and the other thing that they kept telling me was they wanted me here because I had all these fresh ideas. It was a big, a big thing that kept coming up during that first interview. You know, you, we need someone with fresh ideas. We've been doing this for so many years. We've been trying all these things and we just don't have any fresh ideas anymore. You're going to be the person that brings all these fresh ideas, um, to this sort of stale air. And, uh, after all these people came in, you know, I'd been there, for, uh, I, you know, things progressed. I went on for a couple of weeks. And then at one point, one woman asked if she could talk to me. She sort of pulled me aside, said, I really like what you're doing with the kids. And I really like the program that you did. You know, I've been hearing about this, that and the other, you know, and um, I'm so glad that you got this going. I've been trying 
to get the church to do that for years. And I said, pardon? <laughs> she goes, oh, yeah, your idea to do whatever this was with the kids. I've been trying to bring that up for like years and years and years. And no one would want it. No one wanted to do it. No one wanted to listen to me. Um, and they never did it. I don't know how you got them to change their mind, but I'm so glad that you did. And I remember thinking, you know, for a church that says they don't have any good ideas and they don't have any fresh ideas, they have someone who had a really great one that was clearly successful because it had just worked and they just hadn't been paying attention or listening or wanting to hear. Right. And so, you know, I, I, anytime anybody shows any interest in doing anything, I say, well, let's get together. Let's talk, you know, tell me more. Um, and I make time to listen. And turns out this woman was a font of new ideas. She was a hamster wheel of great ideas. And, and so I said, well, you know, at that point, I could have said, now, now, this is my job. This is often happens to people, right? This is my job. Uh, I don't need your help. Thank you. Uh, I'll take it from here. Or they'll say, that's not the way we always do things. Or, well, did you run that by the council? Or they'll say, you know, we just don't have the resources for that. Maybe next year. Shoo, shoo, shoo. And, and that happens so often. And people don't even realize they're doing it when they do it. But what that does is it shuts someone down really quickly. And what they're doing is they're shutting down the Holy Spirit that's trying very hard to set a fire under somebody. And so what I did was I said, well, what, tell me what else you've been trying to do. I'm so sorry that's been frustrating for you. What, what are you thinking? And she had all these great ideas. And so what I said was, well, that sounds great. Which one do you want to start with? That sounds amazing. Who in this church do you know well enough that you think you could work with them so that you're not trying to do this by yourself? Oh, that sounds fantastic. Let's talk about how you would logistically do this. Have you thought through the steps? Um, what kind of resources will you need? How can I support you? Not jump in and take it. Oh, that's a great idea. Thanks. I'll take it from here. Step back. But to try and encourage her. And, and what that is, is, I mean, it's good. It's good politic, first of all, if you're trying to encourage volunteers but it's also discipleship because she was hearing the Holy Spirit call her to a ministry. She may not have defined it that way, but the Holy Spirit was clearly calling her into youth ministry. And my job was to foster that and encourage her and support her and put, give her the pieces she didn't have so that she could keep listening and following um, and and pursuing and and so I did things like trying to um you know I'd say things like wow it sounds like you are hearing this voice over and over and over again saying the same thing and all, the, all these other people have told you no um that sounds a lot like when um uh when uh, Samuel was with Eli the priest and Samuel was hearing the voice over and over again and he didn't know what to do with it and he ran to the priest and the priest could have said hush you're just a kid what do you know but instead he said well whatever the Lord tells you keep listening and ask for clarity right I said that's what sounds that's what sounds like with you and and, and then she had some scriptural basis oh this isn't weird this isn't just me I'm not just being annoying because that's what she had been told right in one mm -hmm. way or another you're just bothering people with all this you have validity, you have worth, you are valued clearly by God. And I want to make sure that I'm reinforcing that. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to give her the, the biblical terms for, you know, this is the voice calling you, this is discernment, this is discipleship, um, let's pray about it. 
And then how can I help you next? And if I didn't have the resources, I'd say, well, if this is really going to work, if this is really meant to be, if God really wants this to happen, God will provide whatever it is we need next that we don't see right now. And by God, you know, two days later, she'd say, you wouldn't believe it. You were right. It appeared. Someone called me out of the blue was like, hey, I've got a a whatever. Would you would that be helpful to you? I couldn't believe it. Um, And I'd say, well, it sounds like, you know. Instead of saying, well, yeah, of course I'm right. That's because I know everything and I'm the expert and you're not. What I said was, it sounds like God really wants this to happen. Let's do more listening. sounds like you're really paying attention. It sounds like you're really being a vessel. It sounds like this is really confirmation of your calling to this ministry in this season. Um, And that's something that I think... um, for a lot of reasons, churches miss, but in that situation, it worked, and it was good practice because um, I've had to do it again and again and again and again in so many churches since then with so many people, and it just gets more and more fun every single time to see how far God will take people if I just keep sort of fanning those flames and encouraging them so much further than they ever would have gone and that I would have ever gone if I had tried to take it over and do it myself and tell them that I know best. Um, It would have squashed that spirit as opposed to infusing it. And so, yeah, that was, that was, goodness, when was that? That was back in probably 2009-ish. I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, Yeah. And do you know how that church is doing now? Um. I believe they're still going. I knew the minister that was there most recently, but he just got promoted to a different position. So I don't know if he's there anymore, but no, I haven't been in contact with them in a while. But when I was there, their youth group was going and we developed um, actually a new, when I was there, that was when I really started practicing my youth discipleship model, mm-hmm. um, which I'm actually I'm, planning on writing another book about that, but I haven't, haven't finished that yet. Um, but, but last time I heard, um, they had youth coming in hand over fist. They were much more actively involved in the general life of the congregation and they were really, um, actively participating in the ministries. I was encouraging adults. This is the best part. Um, if we have time for a second, um, I, what I started doing was I realized that the church had a ton of ministries. You know, oftentimes progressive churches do, right? You you go back into their history and you find out, oh, half the nonprofits in town, even though they're now separate entities, were started by the church, right? The homeless shelter, the the food pantry, the clothes closet, whatever. Um, You know, the local park, they were all, the local university even, were all started by the church. But the people that are running them are tired. They've been there forever. They're tired. They're burnt out. They don't feel like they can let them go because they're so important, but they can't find anybody else to take them over. So what I, and and those were the people that came in that day and dumped all their stuff on the desk and said, here, you can do this. Part of the reason why they did that was because they were also the head of the food pantry, the head of the local soup kitchen, the head of, right? They couldn't do it all. And so what I asked them to do was, Um, I tried to kill two birds with one stone, right? I asked them if they would be willing to teach the kids how to do that ministry. And we did it in a very specific way. We didn't just say, okay, kids, go volunteer. I asked the head of that ministry to come to the Sunday school when they were meeting anyway, and they were the program for that Sunday. And I asked them to share 
about their ministry with their pictures or their poster boards or their slideshow or their stories, whatever they wanted, however they wanted to describe what it was that the local, you know, food pantry did or the local um, rehabilitation halfway house did, whatever it was, explain it to them. But I asked them to please be very clear and answer three questions at some point during their presentation. What scripture inspires you to do the work that you do? Why is this work vital to do as mature Christians? We don't just do it because we're nice. Why are you doing it? Why is it so important that we do this as mature Christians? And then ask the kids to help you. Don't just say, okay, kids, we're going to have a project. Would you be, now that you know all about this, would you be willing to help me? And they were shocked to find out that the kids went wild for this stuff. They were, you know, this ministry that they could not get anybody interested in for years. Every Sunday, I have my sign-up sheet. I put the sign-up sheet outside. Please sign up because we need a whatever. They couldn't get anybody interested. All of a sudden, they've got 20 kids that are, are clamoring hand over fist to ask questions to see if they can help. And then, of course, we had thought about a project the kids could help with that they could do on their level. Because, of course, they can't just go in there and, and take over. But there was always something the kids could do to help with this ministry in a meaningful way when they were all there on Sunday. And that we worked really hard on because we wanted it to be fun and we wanted it to be successful. And so the kids were planting victory gardens to feed the local senior center. The kids are assembling Thanksgiving care packages for all the, the senior shut-ins. The kids are assembling. They made cookies at one point to go to the local food soup kitchen um, because they served lunch on Tuesdays. But the kids were all in school on Tuesdays. They couldn't go or they would have. So they made, I think, 250 cookies and decorated them all and bless them all and package them so that they could be sent to be fed to the homeless people when they came in for their lunch. So this is what the kids were doing. And then um, and then some of the older kids would say, can we do can we do it again? And then they started being active vital members of those ministries. And so then it gave not only did it give the older folks a break, they also had some faith that this ministry wasn't just going to die with them. There were younger, fresher people that wanted to come in um, and, and help and take over eventually. Um, all the people that had said, I'm so burnt out, I don't ever want to help work with the kids again, suddenly said, you know, I'm the head of the local um, pregnancy resource center, and um, I have time. I've noticed, I've checked with all my friends, and apparently you have every Sunday school booked through February, but at the end of February, I could come in for that Sunday that's still open, and I could talk to the kids, and I have a project for them, and all of a sudden, they wanted to help because they were excited, and, and it renewed remembering the scripture that inspired them. And understanding, really putting it into perspective, I don't just do this because nobody else will do it. I do it because as a mature Christian, I'm called to do it, reinvigorated their ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and then they wanted to get involved more with the kids, and the kids wanted to get more involved with them. And I remember then the kids started saying, is it okay if I bring my friend? I told my friend we're, what we're doing this Sunday, and my friend wants to come help. And so more kids are coming in. And I remember the biggest day, this was actually right before I left, but the biggest thing was I got a call from the local school who said, um, it was actually a private school, not a public school, a, a, public, a private school that said, um, you know, little Timmy in your Sunday school, every single Monday, he tells the teacher all about what he's been doing 
at church, right? Which is what we hope for. This is what we would pray that our congregation does when they go in on Monday is that they talk about what they did at church. Well, this is what little the little, little boy is doing. And they said, we keep hearing about these amazing things that he's doing. Would you be willing as a representative of your church and as the youth director to come to the school and speak at an assembly to talk to our kids about the problems of poverty in the in the community, what causes it, what your church is doing to fix it, and how we can help. And this is, right, that's evangelism when it works well, okay? I didn't have to stand at a street corner and scream at people. And the thing was, the church at that point may have still been small. You know, it wasn't a 600,000, you know, person mega church, but it was vital because Discipleship was happening. Invitation was happening. Welcoming the newcomer was happening. Happening, um, you know, making the world a better place one step at a time was happening, um, and it was all tied back into into scripture and in the Christian path. And so that's, you know, in that that's a definition of an vitality that we don't often hear or see. So okay, well, I know that you have to um, have a heart out. But I would love to have you back to talk a little bit more about this in the future, near future. Um, what is the website address if people want to know more about um, how to grow your church? Uh, people, that's exactly it. Um, how to grow my And okay. on Facebook, I have a Facebook page, How to Grow My Church. And um, if you want to learn more about how to welcome your newcomers in such a way that does get 85% of them to come back, and that has been tested in church after church, you can read Grow Your Church church. Um, and if you want to learn how to invite people and teach your congregation how to invite people in a very effective manner, step by step, you can read um, Unstoppable Outreach um, by Reverend Tracy Barnow. And you can get that on howtogrowmychurch.com, or you can get it on Amazon or Kindle or wherever you, you normally get your books. Thank you so much, Dennis, for having me on. I, I love talking church vitality. I love talk, talking church growth. Um, and it's just really been a joy to be here. Um, and um, hello to all your listeners. Well, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm know that this is a message that a lot of people need to hear. So um, thank you for taking the time. And I look forward to talking to you again. Oh, call me anytime. I would love, I'd love to come on the show and, and, and talk to you about church any, anytime. All right. Well, take care. Blessings. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. thankful that Tracy was able to come on to the show. Um, actually, if you heard that um, early on, I kind of talked about how hard it was to get her on the show. There was just a comedy of errors that happened on the day that I um, we, we recorded this. Just things weren't working. Um, I lost the internet temporarily, and all of this crazy stuff happened. So I'm thankful for her patience and um, for 
being able, after all of that, to have a fair, a really good conversation. And, you know, I have to have her back because I'd like to have a longer congregation and um, I feel like I need to make it up to her. So, but thank you, Tracy, for your patience. So I have a, before we go, a bit of a story that's related to this uh, podcast. Um, last, back in De- uh, mid-December, um, the regional minister came to worship with us. And the regional minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is kind of the, most disciples probably will go crazy if I say this, a bishop or a conference minister. It's a person that obviously is in charge of oversight and is the pastor to the churches in the region. And so he was there, and I was uh, kind of describing the congregation, and I remarked on the size. And he could probably tell that I was a bit sheepish about the size. And he decided to tell a story about something that happened early in his own ministry, where he was the pastor of a congregation of 12 people. They were small, but they were also incredibly engaged in the community that they lived in. They were involved in mission. And he reminded me that the size doesn't, isn't what matters in God's eyes. It's faithfulness. Now, anyone wants to see the church grow. I want to see my small congregation grow. But size should never stop a church from being church, from being church to each other, and also being in service in Christ to the world. So, just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, Make sure that you're following us on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Um, The links are in the show notes. Um, You can visit us at enroutepodcast.org. I'm trying to work on on placing some additional material, stuff that doesn't make it to the um, show description um, for for podcast episodes. So, also, if you have a question or a comment, uh, drop me an email. Uh, my email address is reverendpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And I really do want to hear your questions and your comments, so please send those emails. Um, I would love to have them, and I would love to be able to respond. Finally, please consider leaving a rating or writing a review on a podcast app. Um, Podcasts are kind of like everything online these days. They're run on algorithms. And when there are more positive reviews, it's a whole lot easier for people to find this podcast. And I think it's important that we have a podcast like this that looks at um, mainline Protestantism, obviously from the inside, but also with a critical eye. And I need your help to uh, make sure that this podcast can spread. I've made it easy for folks. You, um, if you look in the show notes, there is a link, and that link helps you to go to directly to the podcast app of your choice where you can um, leave your rating. Um, you'll see the link. It's ratethispodcast.com backslash church in Maine. So that is it for this episode of En Route, a journey of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care. Godspeed. And I'll see you soon.